um, are doing this series called The Story, and some of you have bought copies of uh, this version of Scripture, and uh, it is an abridged version. We keep saying that over and over again. We don't want you to get rid of your 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 whole Bibles, but this is what we're going through as a church uh, from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end chronologically uh, over a number of months. And so we've been working it through, and most of you are reading the chapter ahead of time each week so that you know what it is that's coming. And so just to bring you back into the right space, we've talked about the Garden of Eden and what happened there. And then we've talked about the covenant that God made with one person, with Abraham, and it got passed down through his son and then the next son until it becomes passed down to a family and then the 12 tribes of Israel, and then it becomes passed on to a full nation. And and it, and it gets complicated. The more people that you add to it and the more time goes by, the more complex it becomes. Jeff and I, a couple weekends ago, got to go to Ottawa for his birthday overnight. And uh, we went to the Canadian Museum of history, which was just fantastic. And it was so fascinating to just be there and, and read the stories and try to understand what happens when, you know, different people groups migrate or when war happens or alliances happen or different cultures come into contact with each other. And it just goes to um, just demonstrate that life is never simple, right? You can have a point A and you can have, well, I'm going to take these four steps and it will get me to point B. And that's rarely going to happen. Even in the museum layout itself, you're taking all these twists and turns and a couple times you backtrack and then you go forward again. And that's how life goes. It's never quite that smooth. Politics comes in, different society changes, different things happen. And, and we end up going, okay, well, I guess we're here now. And so that's a little bit of what's happening um, with Israel. So you'll remember that Joshua, we left them last week in the promised land. They're in the promised land. And so now, you know, this is what they've been going forward to. And so by anybody's count, they should be able to just pull out their rocking chair and sit on the front porch of the house and just kick their feet up and go, okay, we've made it. We're in the promised land. All is good now, right? Except that's not how it goes. And uh, there's still, it's not a happily ever after. And so we're on chapter eight this week. And if you've been reading it, then you know what we've done. But it's not this happily ever after everything is fine thing going on. There's still some enemies to deal with, despite all that happened in what we talked about last week. There's still some land to be cleared. It turns out that when you get to where God has called you to be in the promised land, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And if you didn't see that coming, I'm just telling you now, if God's got a call on your life and you're aiming towards something, when you get there, there's a lot of work to do. Okay, turn the person beside you, just go, there's a lot of work to do. Okay? So chapter 7, which we looked at last week, ends with the words, Joshua dismissed the people each to their own inheritance. And I just want to... show you a little bit of some of the change that's happened. Because what that means is he dismissed the different people who were all part of tribes. There's 12 tribes. And they each have their own space that's been allocated to them in the promised land. So up until now, they've been traveling as a full group in their tribes, but traveling as a full group and traveling under the leadership of Joshua. But now they are no longer nomadic. Now they're settling in a defined space. And each of them, each tribe has their own space. And so they're a little more attached to specific territory, and they're not on the move altogether anymore. And then for whatever reason, in addition to that, there's no, you know how you had Moses led them out of Egypt? And then after Moses, he, uh, the next leader was Joshua. So for whatever reason, there's no successor to Joshua. 
There's nobody that's, that's the leader of the whole nation. And so now they've been brought out of Egypt and they're in the promised land, but now they're spread out in different places in that land in their own. And so, and there's not one leader to unite them all. So there's, so there's, it's, it's got a feel of more of a loose gathering of tribes, you know, with this sort of fringy concept that, yeah, and we're also part of a, a nation of Israel, but it's a lot more localized in different places now. So that's a big, it's a big societal change for them. And then furthermore, you add on to that, the people abandon God. So here's what it says on on page 103 in the story, if you're using that, or Judges chapter 2. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods in the land that they had moved to. And, and God, therefore, hands them to their enemies just like they had been told would happen, just like what Joshua had warned them. They aroused the Lord's anger. The Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, The hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress, okay? And so so they ask God for help, and God raises up judges, people known as judges, to help save them. And you're going to see a pattern that's going to happen a bunch of times through this time of judges. It says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. This is where you're going to want to develop the face palm, and you just go, oh, it's going to happen a bunch of times. God's going to save them, and then they're going to go, great, thanks, God, and then turn back to sin and turn back to evil, and you're going to go, Ugh. Okay, just try it right now. Take your hand. You use left or right. It's fine. And you just hit yourself in the forehead gently. No need to bruise. And just go, ugh. Right? Okay? So that's what's going to happen. And so this is the pattern that's happening. So it's called the time of the judges. It's what's outlined in the book of Judges in your Bible, if you were wondering. And it's this time of judges. And, and when we talk about judges, we don't mean like a judge today that sits in a courtroom or in the Supreme Court and says, well, this is the law and figures out the legal cases, although sometimes they did that. But also a judge in ancient Israel at this time, they, they often had a prophetic function where they would speak for God. They would be the voice of God. This was not a time yet when anybody could hear from God or speak for God. This was, this was very designated. So sometimes they would be the voice of God. And then sometimes they would have um, a deliverance function as well, where they would be the one chosen by God to help deliver the Israelites out of whatever oppression they were under, to help save them from that. And the frustrating piece of that is sometimes it seems God would choose somebody to be a judge that I would not choose. And maybe somebody that you would not choose. It seems a little bit random, but that's how it is. And so it's this time in Israel's history when God raises somebody up to help save them when they cry out for help. But it's important to remember that the only reason they need help and the only reason they're in trouble is because they keep walking away from God. 
They keep forgetting the covenant. They keep sinning. And so every time they do, God goes, okay. And they get handed over to their enemies, and then they cry out for help, and God saves them. And then they walk away again, and we all go, ugh. Okay? This is the pattern. I suspect it's a little like parenting. Now, I'm not a parent, but I've had a lot of you parents in my office. And you've told me the stories of saying to your kids, listen, you know, this is the way it is. Take it or leave it. Believe it or not. But this is the truth. This is how it is. It's not going to change. Or going, you know, I said to you, no, but did you listen? No, you didn't listen. And so that is why this is happening now because you did, right? And so it's a little bit God parenting Israel really is what's happening here. So we're going to look at, at three of these judges that are, that are, um, that are, are talked about in this time. There's a bunch of them, but we're going to look at three of them today, three different judges, different times, different stories. And we're going to go through them and, and take a look at them. So the first one, her name is Deborah. And Deborah is in a time when uh, the Israelites are being oppressed because they sinned. And so they are being oppressed. In fact, the Bible says cruelly oppressed by a king whose name is Jabin. He's King Jabin. He's the, he's the king of Canaan. And he has an army commander, Sisera. Now, some of you are going, I should have listened. So there's a lot of names in this story, okay? Deborah is the judge. Jabin is the king that is cruelly oppressing them. And Sisera is his army commander. You with me so far? Here's what it says. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah, because she had a tree named after her, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, that's two, two tribes, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. And I will lead Sisera, that's the enemy army commander, the commander of King Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now, we're going to come back to this story, but I'm going to do a little sidestep here because I just want to point something out for in case it's helpful to you, okay? I just want to point out that in this story, the judge that is being referred to and the prophet that is being talked about is a woman, as if it's normal. Okay, and I point that out because there are different understandings in Christianity and different beliefs, and we honor that, and we understand that different people sometimes understand things in different ways, but some would be hesitant about having a woman in leadership, and that's fine. But sometimes some of the explanations that are given are in a story like this, well, you know, Deborah, she was the one that was raised up because nobody else would. God couldn't find a man that would do that, and so there's nobody else available, so God used a woman. But I just want you to see that there's actually no hint of that in this story when you read it. There's, there's no hint of that. Deborah is already a recognized leader. She's already a recognized prophet. She's already a judge. She is married, and there is a nod given to her husband, but he is not the one in this particular leadership role. And Deborah has enough credibility and leadership that when she sends for the commander of the army of Israel, Barak, and she says, hey, I got a word from God for you, he comes without any hesitation, in a society that is primarily patriarchal. So it's interesting. So I just want you to see that there is no hint that this is God's second choice or that this is, she is the exception to the rule. This is just one more story in the Bible, and it's told the same as if the judge or the prophet was a man, as if it was a woman. And for some of us, it's just important to know that. So there you go. There's the little side bit. Back to the story now. 
Okay? So here we go. Uh, Barak, that's the army commander for Israel. Barak said to her, to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I ain't going. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, if you're not confused yet, you're about to be. Okay? We have another group of people, and they are called the Kenites. And they are descended from Moses' brother-in-law. How many people your head just exploded right now? It's Christmas at my in-laws, and I don't know who is who. Okay? These are the Kenites. It's Moses' brother-in-law. They're not Israelites. They have an alliance with Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, who is oppressing the Israelites. And one of these Kenites is named Heber, and his wife, this is the name you want to remember, his wife's name is Jael. Okay? So, Barak, he's the army commander for Israel, gathers 10,000 men to fight, and Deborah is with him. And Sisera, the, the, the enemy guy, he hears about it. He knows it's a rebellion, and he gathers all of his army, gathers his troops, which includes 900 chariots, and that's important because he's got the advantage when it comes to weapons and armor and all of that. And here's what it says. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot to the tent of Jael. Can you say it with me? Jael, you got to stick with me, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, just say no. But Jael, Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. Cover your children's ears. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. This is not a delicate Victorian-era lady, okay? Just then, Barak, the Israelite army commander, came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead, of course. And that is that story. And that is the moment when this cruel oppression ends of Israel. And they have, because God has delivered them, and they now have 40 years of peace. Okay? Turn the person beside you and go, 40 years of peace. 40 years of peace. That's so good. And then the pattern repeats itself, and they sin. They walk away from God, and we all go, ugh. And then they, there's seven years of oppression. And this time, they're being oppressed by a group of people called the Midianites. And this is when we see another judge, and his name is Gideon. Now, with Gideon, 
Things are so bad under the Midianites and their oppression that the Israelites are actually living in caves. And if they plant crops, their harvest gets raided. And it doesn't just get stolen. Their land gets gets destroyed. It says in the Bible that the Midianites invaded the land to ravage it, to destroy the land itself. And so the Israelite people are completely impoverished. They're living in caves. They're just trying to eke out any kind of existence at all and they cry out to God for help. And it's interesting what happens because before God sends help, and he does, but before God sends help, he sends a message. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. How many hear a little bit of parenting there from God in that speech before God helps them? He's got something to say to them. He wants to say to them, hey, listen, you, you think your problem is your enemy. You think that your problem is the Midianites. Your problem is not the Midianites. Your problem is you. Your problem is you. You keep walking away from God. You keep forgetting the covenant. You keep sinning and turning your back on everything that you know is right. You have sinned. And again, as we keep saying through this series, sin is a problem. Sin is a problem. And it's been a problem since the Garden of Eden, way back at the beginning, when Adam and Eve said, hey, this will be cool. Let's be like God. Let's, let's, wouldn't it be great to just understand everything about good and evil? We'll be like God. What could possibly go wrong? Everything could go wrong. Everything does go wrong because it turns out understanding and knowing and experiencing evil is actually really, really awful. It's an awful thing. And sin is a problem. And this is demonstrated over and over again in the story. And also demonstrated over and over again is God's willingness to save and to help. So Gideon is a story of the most unlikely hero Ever. So there's this moment when he, he's a farmer from the weakest clan in his tribe, and one day an angel appears to him. And the Bible later refers to that angel as the Lord. So it seems it was God himself that appeared to him, and, and the angel or God or whoever goes, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon goes, Me? Because at the moment when this angel and God appears to him, he is literally hiding in a wine press trying to thresh out some grain so that he doesn't get beaten up or have it taken away from him by the Midianites. There is nothing mighty or warrior about him at all. And so then there's this this conversation where he has a lot of objections. God says, listen, you're going to deliver the people. I'm going to use you to deliver the people of the Midianites. And and he goes, I kind of have some objections to that. And God politely ignores his objections because that's what God does when he calls you to something. And so Gideon goes, you know, I, I don't think God is with us. And God goes, that's all right. I am. And Gideon goes, well, I'm 
I'm kind of a loser. And God goes, that's all right. I'm with you. Okay. And then Gideon goes, well, listen, could I have some kind of a miraculous sign just to confirm? And God goes, sure. Here you go. And then he goes, can I have another one? And God goes, sure. And then Gideon goes, could I just have one more miraculous sign? And God goes, sure. And he gives them signs. And you go, what were those signs? You got to go read the story yourself. I don't have time to get into it today. And by the way, can I just say, this is not a model to follow when God gives you instructions to go, no, 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 and ask for a million signs. Usually it works out better if you just say yes right off the bat. Just throwing that out there. So Gideon calls up an army and they come. 32,000 people. That's pretty good. 32,000 men. And God says to him, yeah, that's too many. And And Gideon goes, excuse me? And God goes, yeah, it's too many. When you win, you're going to think you did it on your own. So just, just send home all the men who will admit that they're scared. And 22,000 went home. So now he's left with 10,000. But the Lord said to Gideon, still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll thin them out for you there. And if I say this one shall go with you, he'll go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. And by the time the sorting is done, God has just thinned the ranks and moved it all down until it's just Gideon and 300 men from 32,000. And Gideon goes, how's this, God? Yeah, yeah, that'll do. That's good. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, now I just love God's graciousness here going, I know you're a little scared, so I'm going to give you a little something. So if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Eavesdrop. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of camels. And Gideon arrived just as a man in the camp was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And Gideon's listening to this. And his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. What? That that makes no sense at all. What on earth are the Midianites afraid of? They have countless camels. They are just filling up the space. They have thousands of trained forces. And even in the dream, Gideon is a loaf of bread. Has anyone here ever been intimidated by a loaf of bread? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. The Israelites have been terrorized. They've been hiding in caves. They're completely impoverished. What on earth are the Midianites so afraid of? Well, I mean, we've talked about it before, that dreams carried a lot of weight in these cultures, so there's that. But also, maybe it's just that, you know, God's in this. And when God's in something, sometimes crazy things happen. So, so Gideon, he's pretty encouraged. He's a loaf of barley bread. 
And so he takes his 300 men in the dark to the edge above the camp. And the camp is down below in a valley. And, and they have, in their left hands, they have um, torches, which are covered over by clay jars so that you can't see the light. And they're in the dark, right? So in their left hands, they got that. In their right hands, they have trumpets. I presume there's a weapon somewhere strapped to their belt. But they have torches under jars and trumpets on the right. And Gideon gives the signal. And they're standing around the edge of the camp. And they smash the jars so the light comes out and then they blow their trumpets and then they yelled and then they just stood there (laughs) while each man held his position around the camp all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled they just ran away (laughs) and eventually the Israelites chased them and won and there was peace for 40 years say it with me peace for 40 years years, peace for 40 years. Isn't that wonderful? And the pattern repeats again. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. And they set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Oh, come on. And so they sin and they walk away from God. And now there's, again, 40 years of oppression. 40 years of oppression this time from the Philistines, which leads us to the third judge we're looking at today, Samson. Now, you've probably, you probably want to read this story for yourselves. Can't go into it all. It involves an angel announcing his miraculous birth. It, it involves him being a kid who was born to be holy, born with the call of God on his life, and he's supposed to be holy and set apart to God, and that shows by no alcohol, no unclean food, and no haircuts. I don't know why, just no haircuts. And, and, and God said about him, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so Samson grows up and the spirit of God is evident in his life. And it really shows through his tremendous physical strength, basically is what it comes down to, you know, so that he can deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, from their oppressors. This is who he's called to be. But the truth is he's a spoiled brat, he, he disrespects his parents. He's got a quick temper. He's a show-off. Even his friends don't like him very much. They just sort of put up with him when they have to because he's strong. And, and he's just a really very unpleasant man, really. And the Philistines, they hate him because Samson knows that he is called to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so he has no problem just walking in and attacking them whenever he wants and he wins because he's so strong. But the thing is, he seems to think that when he wins, it's just because he's just so great. He's all that and a bag of chips, right? And so he even, he even, he writes poetry about himself for goodness sake. I mean, it's just one battle that he wins, and then he writes his, writes his own little, you know, poetry about it. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Ugh. We don't, we don't like. Uh, shockingly, shockingly, he's also bad in relationships. So he destroys his first marriage. And then he falls for this woman who is clearly just as nasty as he is. And, and he falls for her, but he doesn't think that anything can take him out because he's arrogant. And so even though she obviously attempts to betray him to his enemies over and over again, nevertheless, each time he wins and then he goes back to her. It's really messed up. 
until finally he tells her the secret of his strength, which is his hair. No haircuts, remember? And it's supposed to represent his calling. It's supposed to represent his set-apart status that God has called him to. And so he tells her that, and then he falls asleep, and the girlfriend cuts his hair. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. And binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. And then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Embracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Yay. I guess. I mean, can I just say, Samson's not a hero. I I would rather be Deborah. I would rather be Gideon than, than be Samson. Because this is not a guy that I admire. Even at the end in his final hurrah, his final, you know, we go, oh, but Patty, he turned to God. Yes, but his prayer was, you know, God strengthened me just once more to get revenge for my two eyes. No self-awareness at all. Not for my nation, not for God's glory, not for my people or even my own family. No, there's just no honor or regard for God's plan for God, or even for God at all, really, So can I just tell you, I don't really know what to do with him. I don't like him. I I don't find him very admirable. Fortunately, it's not about him. (laughs) It's not about any of them, really. It's about God. It's his story, after all. And God is showing his character and his call on them to holiness. And, And throughout this time of the judges, which is about 330 years, Israel finds itself in a long season of, of just cycling, of disobedience. And they, six times you can see this pattern of Israel of sin and then oppression and then repentance and then deliverance. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Sin, oh. And every time they repent, God raises up somebody, raises up a judge to save them. And then things become good. And then when things become good, they just walk away again. Why? I don't know. I do know that that still happens today. 
I do know that, that when, when, we're, when we're struggling or when we're fighting against something or we're scared or we're hiding or we're in desperate need of God because we don't know what we're going to do, boy, then we are just, we are on our knees and we are calling out to God and we're like, God, we need help, right? And then God provides and he helps and you got a good job now and marriage is pretty good and all of that. And we don't really mean to, but we just kind of just drift away from God. And we just start drifting away and, and feel a little bit self-sufficient. And, you know, God, I, uh, thanks. I got this now. All is good. No worries. You just go back to where you were. And, you know, a few weeks ago in, our, in one of our services, we prayed um, for the persecuted church, for people all over the world who are persecuted for their faith. And we prayed for them. And I always hesitate when I'm praying. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to pray for them. But I also know that some of the most profound stories of depth of commitment and of love for God come out of people and people groups that are paying the price for that. And sometimes it's the stories of of us doing well with freedom and with prosperity. And we tend to be the most likely to drift away. We tend to be the ones that are most likely to just kind of, you know, just stop praying and stop giving and stop gathering with God's people and just stop loving God with all that's in us. So what do we do with this, with these stories? I have a couple thoughts. First one is, ah, we're still tempted to be like God. Wouldn't it be cool to be like God? To just go, when things are going well, you know, just go, God, I got this. I'm like you. I got this. It's so easy to drift away without realizing it when we don't have a need for God. Which just shows how very messed up we are in our thinking. Because first of all, to think we're ever in a place where we don't need God. And second of all, to think that our need for God is supposed to be the defining factor. It's not. The Israelites were not called to need God. They were called to love him all the time. With all their heart and soul and mind and strength. That was the plan at the beginning to be in communion with God, to share life with God, not to have him in hard times when we hit our knees and go, oh God, I'm in desperate need of help. And then when everything's better, go good, thanks very much, and pack him back in as if he's some kind of a genie in a bottle. That's not not how it's supposed to be. The plan is to love God, to, to make him the very center of our lives, to live our lives doing life with our God. It's so much more than just, God, help, I'm in trouble. And so I have kind of a really practical suggestion today. Um, develop a life of love for God now. Not, not waiting until something bad happens or something difficult, but now. Develop a life that that intentionally walks out and shows a life of love for God now that includes prayer, not just on Sundays. That includes living a 
says he's called us to live, living generously, living in all these, living mercifully, developing a habit of going, Holy Spirit, would you guide me today and help me to actually pay attention when you do listening for his voice at moments throughout the day. You know, some of us, if we were asked to, to say, if I asked you, how do I know that you have a love for God? If I said to you, where do you pray? How do you, when do you pray? How do you pray? Some of you would go, oh, I got I to gotta walk over there, Pastor. I don't want to. <laughs> Some of us, we, we need to ask ourselves, how do, how do we intentionally listen to God? Do we stop through our day and go, God, is there something you'd like me to see or hear right now? I went walking the other day and said, God, would you come with me on my walk? If there's something you want to say, feel free. But if not, it's just good to have you with me. Develop a life of love for God now. And here's my second thought. I want you to hear it. You can always come back. You can always come back. Every time in these stories of the Israelites, every time in these judges, every time they call for help, God hears them. And he brings them back. Because he's showing them who he is. And he's helping them to understand that yes, sin is a problem, but it doesn't get the final word. You can always come back. And God is showing them that he is not just a God who is intolerant of sin, but he is a God who is faithful and a God who is merciful and a God who keeps his covenant and keeps his promises. You can always come back. So I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads at this moment. We're just going to take a few moments just to reflect on our own before we close our service. And for some of us, we're sitting here and we're going, well, you know, I'm doing okay and, and life's good and I'm getting ready for Christmas and everybody's got challenges, but I'm, I'm okay and, and not too bad. And we need to pause, some of us, and just ask God to drop into our hearts. God, is there anything that you would ask me to do to just intentionally develop a life of love for you? God, is it showing? Would you show me what you would ask me to do, how I can increase in my love for you? I don't want to just be somebody that calls on God when I need you. I want to love you. So God, could you show me how to do that today? Show me how to do that this week. If it means I'm getting up 15 minutes earlier to pray, or I'm, I'm skipping a meal to fast, or I'm giving generously out of my Christmas budget, or I'm just welcoming you to join me at my desk where I work, God, would you draw up something into each of our hearts? Show us how we can intentionally develop a life of love with you this week. Show us, God. And God, there are some of us that are here, because there always are. And we've been here before, and we know the cycle, and the face palm is about our own lives. And there's a voice that goes, you, can, you just can't come back again. You can't just do that again. You, 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 just, you just can't. 
And I want you to hear the word of God to you. You can always come back. You can come back. This is a God whose love is bigger than you think it is and whose faithfulness far outstretches yours and whose mercy is greater than your sin and your mess and your patterns and your repeats. You can always come back. He's waiting for you. He's inviting you and he's calling you saying, I love you. Just come back. And I'm inviting you today to come back. For some of you, it'll be in your own moment just where you are right now. And others, at the end of this service, you're going to go to one of our ministry stations and somebody's going to pray with you and just talk with you. And that helps sometimes. But God, at this moment, I pray over those that are in that spot. You you would bring them back to you and you would silence the voice of the enemy or, or their own voices in their heads saying, no, you just can't. And your voice calling us back would cut through and we would trust it enough to come back to our Heavenly Father who is good. Come, God. Bring us back to you. Now, God, as we close our service, we just take a deep breath and go, okay. God, we're going out into a world that for the most part doesn't know you. And we're the ones carrying you. We're the ones carrying Jesus. We're the ones carrying light and darkness. So we're asking that you would help us to do that well. Help us to put our shoulders back and take a deep breath and lift our heads and walk out as followers of Jesus, deeply in love with our God. And would you help us as we go to all the places we go this week, would you help us to do good and help us to love people? And most of all, teach us how to reveal Jesus, reveal Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. I pray your blessing over every person here as we do that. God, we ask that you would come this week in each of our lives and work your plan. We pray your blessing over Christmas in the park this weekend, that you would, that people would meet you through it, that you would just help us to work through all the logistics. And God, then bring us back safely on Sunday morning. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. If you want to receive prayer this morning, you can go to one of the ministry team stations. There's people that are there. They'll pray with you. Other than that, make sure you come to Christmas in the park Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. And today, say hi to somebody. Go have a coffee in the Connect Cafe. God bless you, and we'll see you on the weekend.